The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it's a special day here at the History of Literature. You have requested and we have delivered. Our first dream guest as chosen by you, the listeners, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here today. A dream guest. Some of you may recall that we put the word out for dream guest nominations a few months ago. We were flooded with responses. And I said, we'll try to land at least one of these before the holiday season. Some of the guests are a little ambitious, (laughs) even for the number one in the books category podcast, asterisk, in the Bahamas. But we will keep working on the list in the new year. Try to get some more dream guests to join us here in the studio. My favorite response is when someone nominates a dream guest who has already been a guest here on the podcast. Well, what can I say? We've been doing this a long time. The archive has swollen. Might not always be hard to find those dream guests back in the in the back catalog. But I do like responding and saying, okay, wonderful idea, and here's a link to the episode. Your wish is our command, dear listener. Well, today is not like that. Today is a guest who was nominated, and we reached out. It all worked, and in fact... I almost screwed the whole thing up with a technical glitch where the recording of our initial conversation was not usable, but fortunately, our guest was kind and gracious enough to repeat her performance, so we have a double thank you to her. So, let's start with the nominating email, and then we'll hear our conversation, and then we'll close things out today with a My Last Book from our fairy tale expert, Jack Zipes. Subject. The Most Perfect Guest, Professor Jessica Curzane. Dear Mr. Jack Wilson, I am the wayward Wisconsinite who has written to you twice before, accidentally at six-month intervals. I thank you for your kindness to me thus far, and now that you are taking submissions for a dream guest, I would like to submit to you that there is no more perfect guest for the History of Literature podcast than Dr. Jessica Curzane of your very own University of Chicago. She is a celebrity in some circles. She's a beloved professor at the University of Chicago, the editor-in-chief of the premier journal of Yiddish scholarship and translation in Geveb, the English-language translator of the fabulous author Miriam Karpolev, and the best orator I have ever had the pleasure of meeting in person. Wow. Education, translation, and relation to authors are perennial themes on the history of literature. I do not think the podcast has yet dedicated an episode to a primarily Yiddish book or author. This language is the preferred expressive means of countless living people and countless stories, and listening to Dr. Kurzain present her findings on Karpolev only strengthened my desire to improve my Yiddish proficiency and bring more books to an English-reading public. Since last writing to you, I have finished the first draft of my translation of Herr Moses in Berlin. It is only 419 pages and so far very bad. But I have three more years to do the necessary research and polish the draft into something worthy of learning. In the meantime, I have started learning Russian. Above my bed hangs a self-made poster which asks, Why study Russian? Its answer is a list. Babel, Bitov. Krishanovsky, the Strugatskys, and tacked on with a post-it note when I ran out of space. Gogol. If Professor Kurzane were to make a similar poster or to come on your podcast, I am sure listeners around the world would be delighted to hear her reasons to study Yiddish. I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by great teachers, both at my university and in my headphones. You are one, and I am convinced that Professor Kurzane is too. I know that there are scholars who are much more famous and just as worthy— but I do not think there is anyone who would be more of a joy to hear. Greetings again from near and or far, Sofonisba. Well, 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 Sofonisba, thank you so much for the email and the nomination. And after reading it, your beautiful email, I was eager to hear what Professor Kurzane was all about, and Miriam Karpolov, too. And you're right that we have not had a show devoted to Yiddish or Yiddish author or work in the past. It's a great language with a great history full of triumphs and a lot of tragedy. 
And we will get into all of that with Professor Kurzine. So thank you, Sofonisba, for your wonderful email. And I hope this conversation lives up to your expectations. I suspect that it will. Jessica Kurzine and her work translating Miriam Karpilov after this. Grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Professor Jessica Kurzane of the University of Chicago, who is also the editor-in-chief of In Geveb, a journal of Yiddish studies. She's here today to discuss her new book, A Provincial Newspaper and Other Stories, by Miriam Karpilov. Jessica Kurzane, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So you're here as one of our dream guests, nominated by a listener. I put out the call for dream guests, and she said, I would submit there is no more perfect guest for the History of Literature podcast than Dr. Jessica Kurzane of your very own University of Chicago. Well, I hope I I live up to those expectations. Yes, she said she's a celebrity (laughs) in certain circles. (laughs) I hope those are very uh, large circles. Very specific, sir. (laughs) Well, maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. But let's start with Yiddish, because one of the things that she noted in her nomination of you is uh, she noted correctly that the podcast has not yet dedicated an episode to a primarily Yiddish book or author. And this was one of the key reasons that she nominated you. And she said that you had strengthened her desire to improve her Yiddish proficiency and to bring more books to an English reading public. And I agree with the mission. So why don't we start there with Yiddish? What is the Yiddish language? What is its history? And tell us a little bit about its writings. Yeah. Okay. So I'll start with the sort of most basic question, which is, what is Yiddish? Yiddish is a Germanic language. It originated about the year 1000. So it's roughly, I don't know, roughly a thousand years old about as old as most European languages. And it originated as the language of the Jews who were living in the high German language area. So there are a number of different contact languages that have influenced Yiddish over the years. Yiddish is a fusion language, like English is a fusion language that combines various neighboring languages. So Germanic languages, Slavic languages, Semitic languages, and also Romance languages have influenced Yiddish in different ways. And and because Jews primarily were literate, if they were literate, were literate in the study of their religious texts, which were written in the Hebrew alphabet, Yiddish has always been written in the Hebrew alphabet. Mm. So it's closely related to German. It sounds like 
German, but its writing system looks very different. If you saw someone sitting next to you on the train reading in Yiddish, you might think they were reading Hebrew. Mm. Just how close is it to German? Would a German speaker be able to kind of track Yiddish? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of Spanish and Italian as kind of a, a pair of languages where a speaker of one can kind of understand a speaker of another, even if they don't actually speak that language. Is, is it that close to German? Yeah, I think it's a good comparison, right? So they're like Spanish and Italian are two separate languages, but a person can make themselves intelligible, especially if they have some knowledge of the other language and can kind of bend their language a little bit. And that's the way that a lot of Yiddish speakers have historically and continue to be able to interact with people who, especially who speak German, is by knowledge of the component parts of Yiddish. Many mm. Yiddish speakers were multilingual, are multilingual, and are aware of which words that they're using come from, say, Hebrew or Aramaic, and can kind of look for a synonym in their lexicon that sounds more German to them in order to make themselves better known. So I think depending on the speaker and the circumstance, a Yiddish speaker could make themselves understood to a German speaker, although it would sound like they had a, an unusual accent. Mm -hmm. Where is it spoken today? Is it still the primary language for anyone? Yeah. So Yiddish was never a language that had a particular country. So um, sometimes when I encounter strangers and they ask me what I do and I say I teach Yiddish, they say, well, what country does that belong to? And, you know, it was never a language that had a particular uh, sovereign territory. But there are many Yiddish speakers today. It remains the everyday language of about 700,000 Hasidic Jews globally, so ultra-Orthodox Jews, with major centers in New York and London, Antwerp, Jerusalem, and B'nai Brak in Israel. So according to some estimates, Yiddish is maybe the fifth most commonly spoken language in Brooklyn, in New York, mm. behind English, Spanish, Russian, and Chinese. So it's there are major pockets of population where Yiddish is spoken in a day-to-day -day kind of way. And yet, very important for the history of Yiddish, it experienced over the course of the 20th century some devastating disruptions and decline. And so before World War II, there were approximately 10 or 11 million speakers of Yiddish. But as a result of the Holocaust, millions of Yiddish speakers were victims of the Holocaust. Something like 85% of the 6 million Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. And so that is one among several reasons, but probably the most, certainly the most significant reason why Yiddish experienced an enormous and, and devastating decline. So yes, it's still a language with many speakers, but it's also a language that is endangered in, in some ways. Hmm. Which seems like it will be important when we come to talk about Miriam Karpolov, because she was writing in the early 20th century, and so it's sort of important to understand that the language was thriving when she was writing in it. It was newspapers and publications and, and a lot of people speaking it, and uh, it's not as it is today, where it's a little bit more of a, an endangered species. Yes, absolutely right. And, and and today, many of the speakers of Yiddish are primarily part of, of the Hasidic community. Miriam Karpolev was a secular speaker of Yiddish, and that particular kind of population of Yiddish speakers has experienced significant declines. Her characters are immigrants to the United States in the early 20th century at a time when there was a real explosion of Yiddish literature, of Yiddish publishing, print culture, popular culture. And as is the case with many immigrant communities, that community experienced significant linguistic assimilation, and many of the children and grandchildren of that generation of Yiddish speakers no longer speak Yiddish. Hmm. I'm going to ask a, a multi-part question. Uh, and the first part is, if there are any qualities that make Yiddish unique, is there anything about it from a technical perspective that we would find uh, special or unusual? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll go back to the idea of component languages, that Yiddish speakers were often speakers of multiple languages. They were aware of the sort of cultural, uh, maybe stereotypes or connotations or understandings that came with each language that was part of their own language. And sort of there was, there's a lot of language play in Yiddish in between the registers or frictions between these languages. Something that, so like if you read a Yiddish poem, something that feels like a particularly satisfying rhyme is often something that rhymes 
between one component of the language and the other in a way that might be unexpected. So there's a kind of a real attention to the component parts of the language that makes it particularly challenging to translate when you're moving it from this kind of almost multilingual atmosphere into a, a more typically monolingual English. Yeah. So, and I think, and then the other thing is, of course, like all languages are embedded in the cultures that they are part of. Yiddish is embedded in a kind of um, Jewish culture with a very comfortable relationship to things like Jewish holidays and Jewish cultural and religious practices. And so that has to be maybe more explained as you're moving it into an English language context. Right. Well, I must have either designed this question so well or you are the perfect person to answer it because you included <laughs> the next two parts that I was going to ask. I was going to ask if there are any aspects that are especially difficult to translate. And you've kind of led me right to that when you say that it's made up of all of these different languages and the the users of it will be f fluid in, you know, pulling something that they are aware comes from a different language, I guess. So for you to translate yeah. that into English, you know, I can imagine some things like someone might use a fancy French word or, or something like that where you could maybe kind of replicate it. But there must be times where you just think, well, I'm losing a lot of the nuance here unless I keep it in the original and kind of explain it in a parenthetical, or it just seems like there'd be maybe some clunkier solutions that offer themselves up to you. Yeah, it, and it depends on the context. So I have a glossary in the back of my book. I've kept a number of words untranslated, and then mm. if the reader feels like they want to know what those things mean, they can turn to the glossary. Sometimes I will say something like, blah, 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 she said in Russian, or something like that to kind of just point to the, right. the different languages right. that are happening in the book. Some translators do something that's called a stealth gloss, which is when you use the original word and then you kind of put in commas or something somewhere in the sentence something mm. about what that word means. <laughs> right. So you've yeah. kind of done the translating without being sort of obvious and putting a footnote or something. Yeah. So I do that a little bit too. So I kind of use a variety of different strategies to kind of make sure that the readers are aware of the original language context a little bit and not make it feel like it was very much in English. But then the other kind of translating that I had to do in this book or attention to difference that I had to do in this book is that uh, Miriam Karpolov was not writing in 2023. And so mm. There is also a kind of maybe translation that happens thinking about what audiences in the 1930s or audiences in the early, you know, the 19 teens would have known even in English that maybe we don't know or are less comfortable with, you know, like if there's a point when uh, one of the characters in this book is flushing a toilet, actually. And I was like, oh, well, what did a toilet look like for her? Mm, and I yeah. had to go like looking, you know, looking online for uh, what does an antique toilet look like because she pulls a chain and I wanted to be able to picture, you know, the tank is on top and you pull a chain and the commode is underneath and like, they're not, it doesn't look like a modern toilet. And so to be able to translate it correctly, I had to be able to visualize it. And so there's a kind of, I don't know, it's not a language thing, but a time thing as well that happens when you translate an older text. Right. And to know, would that have been a newfangled invention at the time or would it have already been kind of old hat for them? And and uh, yeah, you want it to be modern and fresh so people can read it without thinking that they're reading something that's stultified. But on the other hand, you kind of want to preserve some of the black and white aspects of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've translated three books by Miriam Karpolev, and the, the second one that I translated, Judith, is a, is a short novella. And actually, Miriam Karpolev herself had translated it. There's a handwritten manuscript in her archive at the YIVO Institute for Jewish Studies that is her translation into English of this novel. So after I translated it, I compared it to her translation, but she translated it, you know, in the maybe it was maybe it was the 1940s or the 1930s when she did it. And she had a beautiful English, but a very formal one. It was very clearly like from all of the reading that she had done. Mm. And it just felt very elevated and kind of old fashioned. And the character in the novel is a young woman in her late teens, early 20s. And I felt like it didn't do justice to the vibrancy of the Yiddish to have this kind of old-fashioned 
kind of stilted English that Miriam Karpolov herself used in her translation because of the difference in time. Like maybe that would have worked in the 1930s, 1940s, but I didn't feel like readers today would have a lot of, would be able to empathize with the character or identify with her if she was speaking such an elevated English. So I had to kind of move her into a more contemporary idiom without going so far that it felt anachronistic. So yeah, it was a really kind of that in that way, it felt much more about trying to balance and pitch where we are today in our English language than it did like it then than it had to do with the Yiddish itself. Wow. You know, the thing that I'm reminded of was uh, my son and I were just reading articles about uh, people who are using AI to write college admissions essays and or at least to write the first draft. And so, you know, he he just said, you know, write an admissions essay to the university of such and such. And and he got back his four paragraphs instantly. And I said, yeah, but you see, this is all kind of cliched and stilted. And, and he said to it, uh, OK, rewrite it, but with fewer cliches and more relaxed language. And it rewrote it in the, <laughs> in a different like it, it got the tone right. It changed the tone. And you're doing a similar endeavor, almost like you're going over it again to get the rhetoric right or to get the right diction. Yeah. Yeah. And a, a, any translation is an, is an act of interpretation. You have to make choices about what do you think the original meant? And then how do we convey that? Or how do I want to convey that now so that it will mean the same thing or mm. mean something similar so that the readers will come away with a similar kind of feeling uh, having encountered that text. And yeah, and that's, a, I think, a nuanced and challenging set of decisions that a person has to make. It's nuanced. And I would never expect I know people are more optimistic about AI than I am, but I would never expect them to kind of be able to get it right because you're bringing to it really a, a kind of love for the writing or a love for the author or a, a, a kind of care that I don't think yeah. I would expect a computer to be able to apply. Yeah. And also there is no such thing as right, right? Like there's, yeah. there's my translation might look different from someone else's translation and it might not be there's no one that in particular that's right but ideally you know you would as you're reading be interested in knowing how is this translator presenting it or or reading it versus someone else mm -hmm. what do you do with uh, yiddish words that have become common in english this is a really tricky question actually mm -hmm. Because they're like, you know, you've heard of Spanglish, you've heard of yeah. there are many sort of immigrant communities that incorporate elements of their language, their their home country's language into their English. But sometimes the meanings of those words shift over time and they kind of accrete, if you will, meanings that that community or that the broader English language community has about what Yiddish is to take the example of Yiddish. So because of the role that Yiddish has played in American cinema, in American popular culture, television culture, because of the way that Jewish immigrants sometimes looked down on earlier immigrants as being less sophisticated, there are stereotypes about Yiddish as being funny, as being parochial, that have kind of seeped into the way we interact with very words that in Yiddish are very ordinary. So the, for example, the word schlep, which just means to carry, when you uh, use it in English, often yeah. it means like to carry with complaining and you can't believe how heavy this is that you have to schlep it everywhere. But it's actually in Yiddish, just a simple word that means to carry. And so it's not the same word, even though it is the same sounds. Right. That's almost like a it's almost like a false cognate, you know, when you, you get right. there as a as a student of a language and you think, oh, good, I don't have to translate this one. It's basically the same thing, but it's not. It's you you have to actually yeah. change it. You can't just import it because you give it a different meaning. Exactly. So if I left the word schlep in a novel with instead of saying carry, if I said, oh, well, everyone knows this word in English anyway, so I'll use it as an opportunity to rem remind my readers that she's speaking Yiddish, and mm -hmm. I'll put the word schlep, and I have, you know, this person schlepped this bag to the airport. Well, then all of a sudden, first of all, it sounds like I'm making fun of maybe the text, because people 
people chuckle sometimes when they hear Yiddish. There's a lot of stereotypes about it being sort of like an inherently funny language. It would sound hokey. It would sound maybe it would make this character sound like she was an old lady, but actually she's a person in her 20s. Right? We have all this cultural baggage about the language beyond the actual meaning of the word. And so it, you have to be actually very, I try to leave things in the original very sparingly because I think it actually can be quite distracting because of all of the ideas people have about Yiddish that they bring to reading without even necessarily knowing that they're bringing them. Yeah, I would have definitely brought that. It, when you said the word schlep, I I had no idea that it just meant carry. I would have pictured in my mind a, a traveling salesman who's beladen with way too many you know products on his back, and he's sort of hauling yeah. it along and, and feeling like, woe is me. He's sort of tevya. You know, <laughs> yeah, <he's>... exactly. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so let's get to Miriam Karpalov, and let's just start with the basics of her. I think she'll be new to most people. Uh, when was she born, and and where, and how did she grow up? And let's go through all of that before we get to her writing career. Yeah, sure. So Miriam Karpalov was a prolific writer in the Yiddish press in America. She wrote many, many novels. Many of them were serialized in the Yiddish newspapers. She was born in 1888 in a small town outside of Minsk in what is now Belarus, was then in the Russian Empire. And she was a middle child in a family of 10 children. Mm. And she came to the United States in 1905, which is an important year. That's the year of the failed Russian Revolution. There was at the time when there were quite a lot of pogroms in the region and, uh, and, and social upheaval and political upheaval. And that's the context in which she came um, and settled in Harlem and later in the Seagate neighborhood of Brooklyn. She moved around quite a bit in uh, New York, and she also spent quite a lot of time in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is where she spent the end of her life. Uh, she had several brothers who lived in Bridgeport. She immigrated with a lot of family, with several brothers, seems like also with some, well, certainly with some cousins, some of whom she was very, very close to. And she spent a lot of time kind of living among family members. And she started writing pretty much as soon as she came to the United States. She was trained as a photographic retoucher. Mm. So that was someone who you would take the negative and you would hand paint it to correct it. So if there's too much shadow, you might kind of brighten it up with by hand painting it. Or she sometimes, she says, she wrote a lot about or a little bit about this time in her career. And she said, you know, like, oh, well, the photographer left off somebody's hand. And so I painted the hand back in. I mean, she was kind of like doing early versions of Photoshop, but she did it in kind of a, a factory-like condition. Mm. She talks about how she would, she would climb the stairs into an area that was completely dark, right? Because she's working with film negatives and there would be like one kerosene seen lamp in the middle of a table of otherwise completely dark. And she writes about how there was, it was slick with oil. It was a huge fire hazard. And she was often the only woman working in that space. And she would get sort of catcalled and disrespected. And that's the theme that runs throughout her writing is that she's often the only woman in the room mm. and experiencing a lot of harassment and discrimination as a result of that. Anyway, so she's a writer. She writes, she starts writing in kind of like the onion for Yiddish newspaper, mm. <laughs> the kibitzer. She's a humorist. She writes a lot of lists of jokes and aphorisms and also little comical sketches, as well as reportage, kind of like first person narratives about things she's seeing around the city. And then from there, she starts writing novels. She writes this, uh, her first novel is an epistolary novel, um, a novel in letters called Judith, which she published in 1911. That's the one that I mentioned before. She later self-translated and, and I, I did this comparison when I was working with that book. And she goes on to write many, many short stories and novels, some of which are serialized in various newspapers of various kind of political stripes, and some of which appeared also in book form. One of her most famous ones was The Diary of a Lonely Girl or The Battle Against Free Love, which I also translated, which is about a single woman living in New York City who, in her mid-20s, who dates 
this kind of alphabet of horrible men who are all really not nice to her, really are interested in, in something called free love, which is romance without marriage or sex without marriage. And she feels kind of squeezed between their expectations for her and the expectations of her landladies that she's renting rooms from, hmm. that she should be respectable so that they'll have a respectable home to live in, right? It is, uh, you know, the landladies are worried that they could be suspected of having a brothel if they have a woman that they're, you know, living in there. Inviting guests over, yeah. Exactly. So that she's got these kind of like competing pressures on her and she's trying to kind of navigate them while also being in sometimes very sticky situations where it seems like sexual violence is about to happen. So that was serialized and then published in book form. And that was probably her most popular, most famous novel. That's 1917, 1918. And then she wrote through the mid-1930s when she at a certain point had some health concerns and ended up sort of going into retirement in Connecticut. But the part that I most recently translated is a a novel from 1926, which is called A Provincial Newspaper, which is about her time working. It's a it's semi-autobiographical. She doesn't say the name of the narrator and Probably it's quite, it's exaggerated for comic effect, but it's more or less about her life. And it's about a woman who is a well-known author of popular fiction in Yiddish newspapers who gets hired to join the staff of a new Yiddish newspaper in Boston as the editor of their women's pages, mm. which is kind of like the supplemental section for women's interest. And she's ends up being asked to do all kinds of labor outside of her contract, and she's treated with a lot of disrespect. And the novel sort of makes fun of the editors who she has to work with. So that's the first section of the book. And then the middle section is about part of her unpublished memoir about her time in Palestine. In 1926, she and her brother and her sister-in-law and her sister-in-law's family, after they had already received, uh, were already naturalized as American citizens, decided that they wanted to settle in Palestine, British mandate Palestine, and they hoped permanently because they were Zionists and really believed in, in being part of the Zionist movement. And so she and her family settled there, but they only actually lived there for a very short time, for about two years. And this memoir is about her the experience of her arrival there in Palestine. Mm. And then the last section of the book that I translated is 19 very short stories that she published in the Yiddish newspaper, The Forverts, which was the largest, uh, most widely circulated Yiddish newspaper at the time in New York. And there are various short stories, but many of them have to do with kind of the everyday lives of especially of older Jewish women, which is kind of an, an interesting population, maybe an underrepresented population in Yiddish literature. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with more with Professor Jessica Kurzine. Okay, we're back. So, Jessica, you told us a lot about her work for the newspapers, and I'm wondering, did she feel like she was was kind of imprisoned in the topics she was allowed to write about? Was she trying to break out of that? I know from talking to a lot of other guests who have talked about women at this time in the newspapers, on the one hand, they were glad for the work and glad that they were, you know, the newspapers were this great place for them to kind of uh, start to make their way. But on the other hand, they felt like, you know, I, I can write about more than recipes and, and society gossip news and, and that kind of thing, advice columns and, and so on. Was that something she struggled with as well, or was she able to transcend it? It is a little bit hard to tell. My sense is that she, and it's only a guess, my sense is that she really enjoyed writing about love and also making fun of love and writing about women and writing from women's perspective. And that is what she did. And it, to a certain extent, it feels like she had quite a lot of freedom because she's writing actually quite critically about 
men about these editors and so forth. And maybe it's about being able to kind of play different editors off one another so she can work for one newspaper and then write a kind of Ramana clef making fun of that newspaper for another one that's a competing newspaper. And so there's still kind of freedom in, in that marketplace. But also, I, I do think that she was restricted or pigeonholed to a very large degree. And some of that has to do with how her work was received. So there are almost no critics who write about her work, even in her own life. She's extremely popular, but people think of her as being just that, a popular writer, maybe a almost like a pedestrian kind of writer, a writer without worth or value. And so she got to write whatever she wanted, but she didn't get the attention that she probably wanted. She, mm. At a certain point, she writes the writer's union and says, like, I've been a prolific writer for 25 years. Don't I deserve a jubilee? You give all these jubilee parties to everyone. A lot of the Yiddish writers would go on a, a lecture circuit. She didn't have a chance to do that. She traveled and, and, and wrote about it, but she was never invited to give public lectures the way a lot of other male writers were. And so there's a, a certainly a, a paucity of recognition that had a significant impact on, on her career and, and limited the possibilities uh, that she had. But also she writes about in her, in a provincial newspaper, there's a scene where she's sitting with an editor and he's trying to kind of push her writing and we can kind of get a sense of maybe some of the conversations that she probably did have with actual editors where she is writing in one way and the editor says, well, what if you put, what if the main character had a unwanted pregnancy? Mm. And what if the person that she was, she was in a relationship with, what if he had a lot of money and she was trying to figure out how to get the money? And he's trying to kind of sensationalize her writing and make it more melodramatic because he hopes that that will sell more newspapers. And she's actually, though she wrote some melodramatic pieces, especially early on, she's actually not that melodramatic a writer, though she's often considered a kind of writer of popular fiction and she's roped in with the idea of romance writing. I don't think that actually fits her that well. She's very witty. She's very critical. And she's she's kind of a a writer of realistic fiction and not a writer of melodrama, but she maybe was pushed in that direction because that's what people thought of as marketable. Mm. And she was writing sort of paycheck to paycheck, right? She would, she'd have to sort of scrounge up work. And a lot of times she probably, you know, would have to take suggestions, even if it went against her instincts, if it was uh, to keep an editor happy because they were going to hire her for the next project. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. She there were times there were pockets of time in her career when it seemed like she had steady work. So if she's serializing a novel, then she knows she can expect a paycheck every week for that novel. But there were often times when she would, I think, literally go to editorial offices with a story in hand and give it to an editor and say, hey, will you publish this? this week, you know, I have this story. So yeah, she did have to think about what not only what are her readers tastes, but what are the the tastes of the editors and, and how can she sell her work to them? Hmm. Do you have an excerpt for us that you could read that'll give us a flavor of her writing? Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to read to you from a section from a provincial newspaper. So this is the one where she's an editor for a women's page in a Boston newspaper, a brand new newspaper that is poorly run and she doesn't like the way she's treated there. And so, so I'll start. It says, this is how I got ready to write. I sat in a light summery dress that was so thin that the breeze passing between the door and the window came right to me. I felt comfortable. I felt prepared to accomplish a lot of work, but then the telephone, who was it? What did he want? It was Mr. Rat, and he wanted me to come into the editorial office. What, on a Sunday? So what if it's a Sunday? Do you have to go to church? I wanted to know why he needed me there, and he grew furious when I asked. What do you mean, why? For writing, of course. What kind of writing? I'd find out when I got there. Why was I asking so many questions? When he said to come, I should just come without asking anything. And right away. And if I didn't come soon, I'd be too late. It was impossible to get anywhere as fast as I wanted to in this city. However much you manage to catch a ride, you always have to do a lot of walking, too. Winding streets made of crooked stones that animals used to tread on. The animals were the ones who trampled out the original plan for the city, and since then the people have walked in their paths. I walked, I rode, I walked again, and I arrived, cooked through from the insane heat. 
I crawled up the tall staircase of the old building and paused at every floor to catch my breath. I had to cool down somehow or I would faint. I was dying. Oh, you're here. Mr. Rat met me with a wry smile. I had to beg you, but you came in the end. What do you need me for? I asked. I'll tell you in a minute, he snapped and walked into the printing room. I figured that something must be wrong with the editorial we were printing for tomorrow. I thought it was good, but that's not all that I thought. In the meantime, I spied Mr. Com and asked him about the editorial. Is it coming out in the next issue? Sure, he said, looking puzzled that I would ask him such a question. So why did you ask me to come here? I didn't ask you here, he smiled weakly. It was Mr. Rat who asked for you. He wants you to work here in the editorial office like the rest of us. He says no one is better than anyone else here. We're all equal. That's the ticket, said Mr. Rat, carrying a sack full of fashion plates on paper and in boxes. You just separate these and write down in Yiddish how to make these styles and paste it over the English and that's all. A child could do it. I was furious at the task he'd come up with for me. Go ahead, do it. He handed the fashion plates to me. I need it every week, and you should make enough that we can put out two or three a day. I didn't rush to do his bidding. I needed to cool down and to calm down a little because I was furious. How could he have the audacity to pull me from my work, which is also for him, just to tear me away for nothing and sit me down to a task like this? I should give him a talking to, I thought, all the while cursing myself for not speaking up. Like Wilson said about America, before he went on to help the Allies quash German militarism, I was too proud to fight. I saw Mr. Rat watching me, and I grabbed my fan and plopped myself down to my boss's annoyance. He saw that I was not the kind of girl who jumped to follow his orders. I took my time. What's the matter? He approached me. Are you hot? Very. Then why aren't I hot? I don't know. If you didn't fan yourself so furiously, you wouldn't be so hot and you'd be able to work. Why are you doing that? I feel better if I do it. Dismissively, he responded, you don't belong in an editorial office. You belong at the seashore with the millionaires. I think so, too, I replied. Then why don't you go there to the seashore? I'll go. When will you go? Oh, when I can. You can't go now? Who's stopping you? I promised to help get the Pathfinder on its feet, all four of them. Mr. Rat cried, are you making fun of the Pathfinder of your own paper? Very nice. What don't you like about it? And if you see something you don't like, why don't you make it better? You just sit here fanning yourself while the work doesn't get done. Whose work, I asked. Your work, he shouted. This is not my work. It's what you came here to do, isn't it? I came because you called. If I did the work, it would only be as a favor and because I'm already here. Oh, is that all, as a favor? Yes, Mr. Rat, a favor. And what am I paying you for, he asked. For editorials and for editing the women's section, I responded coolly. This is for the women's section. It's fashion. Is that so? But I shouldn't have to write it all myself. You could give this to that schoolboy who's busy reading the proofs and learning how to make mistakes. Then he'd make mistakes on it. Then I'll edit it and correct them. Oh, is that so? He responded in a huff. I expected him to say that he didn't want me to do him any favors, but he didn't say anything. Well, so be it, I thought. I'll work, I'll give in, but I won't come into the editorial office for a job like this again. It's such an appealing character, the stance that she's taking, that it's so kind of unexpected for someone who was writing back at, for a woman, especially in that period of time, that she's so confident about what she wants. It's that very appealing scenario of the worker who knows more than the boss and who is willing to stand up for herself and kind of say, you know, it won't be like this. It's going to be like that. And the boss kind of caves, but she kind of caves as well. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, she's extremely self-confident. She's really she understands how ridiculous this boss is being. And in some ways, she's very frustratingly acquiescent. In some ways, her biggest rebellion is writing the book at all. And that's the case also with the Diary of a Lonely Girl, where you have this woman who seems to kind of go back over and over again to these like pretty horrible men and she says what can i do this is the world i live in essentially like yeah, these are the yeah. these are the men that are available to me her biggest weapon is being able to make fun of them in writing later right so do we know from her reading or or did she talk about any authors she admired 
Were there was she looking at Yiddish examples? Was she looking at English examples? Yeah, I think she was reading in multiple languages. She was definitely reading in Russian. She had a, an educational background in Russian, and some of her things in her archive, uh, especially her earliest youthful writing, are some some poetry in Russian. And she she references some some Russian authors. She's also reading in English. She mentions reading Jack London, for instance. But she's very very enmeshed in and involved in the world of Yiddish letters, and she's reading quite a lot in Yiddish. And I think she's also my sense is that she's reading a lot of newspapers, Yiddish newspapers, because she wrote in so many different newspapers and she had to kind of keep abreast of what was going on in that world. So my guess, if I had to guess what she spent most of her time reading, I, I would guess newspaper fiction, although her characters often are reading printed books as well. And also newspapers in those days, I mean, they were, they covered all kinds of stuff. They might have book excerpts or novel serializations or short stories, or like you mentioned, lists of jokes. And it's, uh, yeah. you, you could find the whole world in a newspaper. Yeah. And especially in the Yiddish press, uh, one thing that was very common would be translations of things that were becoming popular in English language writing that would be then translated for the Yiddish paper. So like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle appeared serially mm -hmm. in Yiddish in the mm -hmm. newspaper. Right. So what are you hoping people will take away from this book? <laughs> Such a big question. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm hoping... A number of things. I, I'm hoping that people will get a sense about the vibrancy of this period and, and Yiddish writing in this period. And I think people have a lot of preconceptions about what Yiddish writing is in particular. Like mm -hmm. you mentioned Fiddler on the Roof, right? This idea of Yiddish as being parochial and old-fashioned. And I think that, that Miriam Karpolov really kind of makes those preconceptions sort of impossible because her characters are so sort of urbane and sophisticated and modern and quite relatable. A number of, you know, college students have told me as they've read The Diary of a Lonely Girl, which came out a couple of years ago, that they're surprised how much she sounds like she could just be kind of a friend of theirs and that things haven't really changed that much. So I guess that's that's one major takeaway. Uh, but also these, as you mentioned, like these are really fun characters to get to know. They're really gritty, rebellious kinds of women. And I, I don't know, I feel like maybe we could use some more voices like those today anyway to kind of get to know this spunky character. Mm, mm -hmm. It really is. And a lot of it can be attributed to historical circumstances, I guess. But it does seem like Yiddish has got a kind of reputation of, well, that's the language of my grandfather. Or, mm -hmm. you know, oh, here's a picture of my great-grandmother. Her first language was Yiddish. But when you hear that the excerpt that you read, it does sound like we're talking about, you know, we're racing around with her as a very young and vibrant and sort of young professional woman. I mean, it could almost be like a, uh, you could imagine it being a Netflix series or something with uh, played by a, a young actress with a lot of kinetic energy. And, and it's not what we might expect from Yiddish just based on our experience with the language. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my great grandmother, who I knew until I was in high school, spoke Yiddish with her parents growing up. And so I, I do, I associate it with great grandparents, but maybe this is a reminder that our great grandparents used to be young too, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and like, you know, we think about them as old people, but actually, you know, when they were young, they were also right. concerned about things like trying to get respect in the workplace or whatever, things that concern young people today. So maybe it's a kind of timeless reminder <laughs> yeah. that old people were not always old. Right. Or that you, it wasn't that they started speaking Yiddish when they were 65, that uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, now, speaking of Yiddish and contemporary uses, uh, you in your book thank the Oak Park Yiddish Book Club, and I am very curious to hear what those meetings are like. Oh yeah, so the Oak Park Yiddish Book Club is a, a group of people who, for more than a decade, they've been reading Yiddish literature and translation together. Um, and I joined the group when I I moved here about six years ago. So they've been doing this together before I even got here. And they are just a wonderful, lovely group of people. They Only one of them speaks some Yiddish, but they just started reading together and 
are really good readers. And at this point, they've read so much Yiddish literature, they meet on a monthly basis and read Yiddish literature and translation, that they're able to really understand the literature in its context. So this mm. reminds me of that author and so forth. And so there's a kind of, it's really beautiful. And also just a lovely, I'm just so happy to be part of this group of people. They're just kind, smart people. And so, and I'm by far the youngest member. And so also it's really helpful to hear their perspectives because they often will be able to say, oh, well, this reminds me about of something that my mother or my grandmother would have done or said. And I'm a little bit further removed from the time period of a lot of the books that were reading. So they have read, I think, all of my translations in manuscript and given suggestions and feedback and encouragement. So I thank them in the book because they're really a big part of my translating life now. Mm. Well, I will put in a plug and say that a provincial newspaper is a great read. It's very lively and, and forward rushing, and it really does conjure up that era, And but it gives it sort of this interesting perspective because it's not the, the usual things that we might be familiar with a bit from the newspaper era of that time because of the Yiddish aspects of it. And I guess we can give a lot of credit to Miriam Karpolov, but also credit to you as the translator to kind of capture that brilliance and energy. Thank you. Well, Professor Jessica Kurzane, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you again for having me. Okay, there we go. That was your dream guest, Dr. Jessica Kurzane. Those are books that should go on your holiday list. A Provincial Newspaper and Other Stories and Diary of a Lonely Girl or The Battle Against Free Love. And Judith, A Tale of Love and Woe. Miriam Karpolov is a very good read. And you are in good hands reading Jessica Kurzane's presentation of her works. Speaking of good hands, those of you who remember our conversation with Jack Zipes will know that... Fairy tales are in good hands when they are in his hands. He's the man who was blessed in some ways by Albert Einstein himself. You remember that story? Einstein told Jack's grandmother on the campus of Princeton, if you want the boy to be successful, you should have him read. Read what? She asked, thinking that he might say science books or math books or... Isaac Newton, maybe something by Einstein himself. Fairy tales was the response. And then that little boy grew up to devote his entire life to fairy tales, collecting them, analyzing them, advocating for them, and discussing them on podcasts like this one. Einstein chose a first book for Jack Zipes to read. I asked Jack to provide the bookend, no pun intended, by selecting a book he would like to be his last. Okay, joining me now is Jack Zipes, author of Buried Treasures, The Power of Political Fairy Tales, and self-described fairy tale junkie. Jack, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Well, if I'm understanding the question, the last book that I want to read is a book that I want to publish, mm. a book of actually unusual uh, Jewish stories that were written from approximately 1870 to 1933 when Hitler came to power. And these are stories that were written in Yiddish and Hebrew and German and French, and so on, that I've collected from all sorts of Jewish writers who experienced not only pogroms in Central Europe, but they also experienced that led to the uh, Holocaust. And so this collection that I've been editing and continue to work on will be my last book that I ever write or edit. And looking forward to publishing it in, in the near future. 
Hmm. And what do those stories tell us about the times, and, and maybe what do the stories tell us about today? These stories are remarkable because the Jews in the particular stories are oppressed in different ways, many different ways. And it's unusual because in all of the stories, or, or let me put it an, another way, uh, there is no brutality or murder or revenge that you read in these stories. Rather, all the conflicts that happen and the are generally resolved through the brilliant ways or pacifist ways mm. that are used and not weapons of force. So that it's unusual that there's no brutality in any of these stories, but rather there's a, a general humanitarian sort of motif that you find in all, all of these stories. And they're very different. They you know, come from different countries, different authors, and so on. And so I was surprised to see that there's nothing vengeful mm -hmm. in, in, in the writing of these stories. Rather, the, the Jews try to use compassion and they use their smartness to avoid the oppression that they're suffering from. I would say ex extraordinary that people being oppressed in Europe does not take up arms, but they take up their, let us say, humanitarian feelings mm -hmm. as a sort of answer mm -hmm. to what type of oppression they've, they've been suffering. Right. Part of me feels like it's it's almost like a, a development that's different from what I would call the Old Testament of feeling like, well, things are going to be okay because you'll have a powerful God on your side too, or you know you'll you'll win in war eventually, or the battle will be yours. But instead, more of a this can be resolved by an appeal to common sense and compassion, and and a solution can be found. And people will be good enough to accept that in their hearts when they hear what the problem is and how it can be solved. Right. Yes, exactly what, what you said. It's just remarkable that people are not trying to kill the people who had been oppressing them. Rather, they want to try to resolve things so that there will be a type of, let us say, well, compassionate uh, society. Mm. That is beautiful. And we will look forward to the publication of that book. Jack Zipes, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Great. Well, thank you once again. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to listener Sofanisba. To our main guest, Jessica Kurzane, and to our cameo appearance guest, Jack Zipes. We are rolling along, aren't we? Thanksgiving is coming up soon, which will be, hopefully, fingers crossed, our annual tradition of giving you a Wednesday edition of the History of Literature, so you can all do your cooking if you're here in the States, listening to a little literature while you do. If you're not in the States, well, you'll get your Thursday episode a day early for no real reason, but hopefully that's not such a bad thing. We are planning to talk about Shakespeare's play The Tempest, which has at least two stunning examples of Shakespeare's language entering our lexicon and has some fascinating commentary on the geopolitical events of his day, meaning the efforts to send out colonizers to the New World, as well as some fascinating commentary of Shakespeare as both playwright and human being, as the play echoes his own situation of heading toward retirement. That's coming up next time, hopefully. We will also have the most passionate man about medieval manuscripts that I've ever encountered, which is a treat. I love passions like that. And we'll have a scholar who wrote a surprising twist on Shakespeare's use of the other. We all know about Othello, of course. But what about the white people who are othered in Shakespeare's plays? What can we learn from those examples? And we still have our Booker Prize winning guest. I told you about her before. Oop, I just revealed that it's a her. <laughs> Speaking of dream guests, that's like a dream come true for you and hopefully for me. Wait, wait, I said that. <laughs> I got that backwards. 
I meant for me and hopefully for you as well. Well, that's the thing about dreams. I never know when they're mine or someone else's. Just like I never know when goodbyes are being issued from me or to me. You're Jack Wilson. Thank me for listening, and you'll see me next time. Did I get that right? Does it matter? Thank you.